Father, again, we, we thank you for the opportunity to come into your presence, Lord, as your people, to worship you, to give you praise, to, to bring you glory, to recognize your glory, Father. And uh, Lord, we pray that uh, for the preaching of your word, we pray um, that your word would uh, come forth clearly through the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would imprint it on our heart, Lord, that you would uh, change the attitudes of our mind and the attitudes of our heart, Lord, that we might rightly give you glory and rightly um, interact with your people in a way that is uh, God-honoring. Father, uh, be with us this morning as we dive into your word together. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so this morning uh, we're going to turn to the final chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. And you can turn in your Bibles to the beginning of chapter 7, though we still have a long way to go in this series. But we are to the last chapter. Um, The passage that we'll deal with this morning is what I believe to be one of the most abused verses in Scripture. It's abused by non-believers who use it as a weapon against Christians. It's abused by progressive Christianity um, that believes that doctrine and truth divide. It's abused because it's used incorrectly, perhaps intentionally so, okay? So I'm going to begin by reading the entire passage, but I want you to pay particular attention to to the first verse, because throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has used the same technique for delivering his message. He lays out the core principle in the first verse, and then he reinforces it and explains it in what follows. He does the same thing here when we consider what it means or does not mean to judge. If we take verse 1 alone, and we'll read it in just a second, but if we take verse 1 alone without any context, it's easy to see how it could be misunderstood. So I'll be reading uh, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Jesus says, Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. When Jesus says in verse 1, judge not that you not be judged, what does he mean? What does he mean? Does he mean, as the words alone out of context would imply, Don't ever judge. See, the unbeliever, as I said, weaponizes this against the Christian. It's one of the few verses of Scripture that they can quote from memory. If the church points to some specific sin, the ready response is, judge not, that you not be judged. Progressive Christianity, which minimizes both truth and obedience, uses it the same way. Who are you? to judge my lifestyle? Who are you to judge my choices? We need to be tolerant of people's lifestyles and choices and simply show love to one another. And in actuality, they aren't saying, don't ever judge. 
Rather, they're saying, don't judge me. Judge not that you not be judged. But Jesus' words here in verse 1, do not mean that we are never to judge. They can't mean that. They can't mean that because the scriptural context does not allow it. Look forward just to verse 6, which I already read, but, um, and we're going to look at more closely later. But jump forward to verse 6, where he says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. How do you know, metaphorically, who the dogs are without discernment? How do you know, metaphorically, who the pigs are without judgment? So the immediate context demands discernment and judgment. And how can we follow Jesus' command without exercising both? Here in the same chapter, verse 15. Look ahead, go ahead and look forward to that. Jesus gives a warning about false prophets. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. See, that same command about false prophets is given numerous times throughout the New Testament and the Old. How are we to discern who the false prophets are without exercising judgment? Jesus continues, verse 16, saying, You will recognize them by their fruits. Inspecting fruit requires judgment to distinguish truth from error. Doctrine or biblical truth matters. Doctrine matters. Some will say that doctrine divides. They're not wrong. It does divide. But done rightly, it divides on the issues that truly matter. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15, or as the King James puts it, rightly dividing the word of truth. Judgment is also a crucial part of church discipline, which is absolutely essential for the unity and the purity of Christ's church. Now, church discipline has fallen out of vogue in the modern-day church, but it's still something that grace takes seriously. It's still something that this church takes seriously. And thankfully, the final step of church discipline has rarely had to be used in the history of this body, but it has been used. Church discipline would make absolutely no sense apart from the understanding of obedience to God's law and the judgment and discernment necessary to make pronouncements on behalf of the church. Finally, we have a clear word from the Lord in John 7, 24, where Jesus says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And we could go on all day long listing verse after verse after verse in the New Testament and the Old that required judgment on our part. But the simple question is this, how can we put all of these commands into practice if we're not exercising judgment? If we're not thinking? If we, if we don't have a standard? Or if we're not prepared to make an assessment? All right? So it cannot mean do not judge. Yet Jesus says, judge not, that you be not judged. What does he actually mean? And are the unbeliever and the progressive Christian always wrong to weaponize this against the Christian? 
Unfortunately, they aren't. Unfortunately, they aren't. All along through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has not only looked at the letter of the law, but he's looked at the attitude of the heart. And what Jesus is condemning and warning about is not the mere fact that we exercise judgment. As we've seen, we're we're commanded to do so. What Jesus is condemning is the heart attitude of judgmentalism. Judgmentalism. He's warning us about the danger of condemning or pronouncing judgment in a final sense. And when we do so, and this is the the attitude of the heart we need to check against, when we do so, we put ourselves in the place of God. We usurp the role of God. Much of the Sermon on the Mount so far has been targeted at the Pharisees, or at least they've been ser- they have served as a point of comparison. That might be a more fair way to say that. Jesus said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5.20, we did that a number of months ago. Jesus told a parable in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verses 9 to 14, where a tax collector and a Pharisee went into the temple to pray. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Verse 11, See, the Pharisee was exercising final judgment upon the tax collector. Notice he doesn't mention any specific sin. The tax collector was in a separate category from the extortioners, the unjust, and the adulterers. Notice he doesn't mention any specific violation of God's law. Notice he doesn't talk to the tax collector directly. That, That would be important, too. He makes his judgment based merely on outward appearances dominated by a self-righteous spirit. He moves from principle to personality. I'm not like that tax collector. The self-righteous always moves from principle to personality and targets the individual. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Verses uh, Luke 18, 13, and 14. The tax collector, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified because he threw himself on the mercy of God. Now this is not only a problem for the Pharisees in the time of Christ, but it's also been a perpetual problem throughout church history, and in the modern church today. We all know, and some have experienced, churches with extreme legalism and prejudice, where man's ideas and rules are elevated and equated to the Word of God. I have a co-worker who jokes that the church he grew up in was against premarital sex because it might lead to dancing. (laughs) I was waiting for the laugh, okay. So that's a, that's a humorous turn of phrase, but it's also sad. It's sad. When man's prejudices and ideas are, are equated with the Word of God, 
It allows the self-righteous to condemn an individual. The spirit of judgment has a tendency to impute motives and to cast judgment without knowing all of the facts. And this spirit manifests itself in the tendency to pronounce final judgment upon individuals, upon people. And the judgment is not so much on what they do or believe or say as it is upon the person themselves. It's a final judgment upon an individual, which again usurps the role of God. The verse continues, judge not that you not be judged. You know, in a human sense, we could interpret this in relation to other people. Don't judge other people if you don't want them judging you. It would be similar to the golden rule, which coincidentally we find in this very same chapter in verse 12. Um, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. We'll get to that sometime in the spring. Um, When we are judgmental, and hypercritical of individuals, it shouldn't surprise us when we receive the same from them. You get what you give, all right? That principle's true, but I don't think it's sufficient to interpret the passage in a purely human way. Judge not that you not be judged by God. By God. It's God alone who stands in judgment. It's God alone to whom we must give an account. In this case, I'm not talking about judgment in a salvific sense. Remember, as I've shared many times as we've gone through this series, the Sermon on the Mount was preached to Jesus' disciples. His message is for those who belong to Him. His message is for those who have put their saving faith in Him alone for salvation and are therefore declared justified. His message is for those who have already been received as children of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. That person has passed through judgment from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life, John 5.24. So not in a salvific sense, but there's a second form of judgment that doesn't relate directly to our salvation, but rather relates to our sanctification. Because we are children of God, we are subject to His judgment and correction as He molds us and conforms us through the power of His Holy Spirit into the image of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul describes how the Lord's Supper should be approached rightly. He criticizes the church for their practices, describes the right manner that he had received, and urges each individual to examine himself to assure that he is partaking in a worthy way. And the section concludes with these sobering words. Here's the judgment I was talking about. That is why many many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. 1 Corinthians 11, 30-32. God will discipline His children. And He does so because of His great love for us. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. Hebrews 12, 6. 
And God exercises his judgment upon believers in order to conform them to the image of Christ. So that's a second form of judgment apart from our salvation that God uses to make us to what he wants us to be. The third and final form of judgment, which also applies to the children of God, is the judgment of rewards. The judgment of rewards. There will come a day when we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us, hear this, then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Romans 14, 10 to 12. Our works follow us. Our works follow us. They do not merit our salvation, but they will be judged. They will be judged. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself, hear that part, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 15. Now, Scripture's not completely clear on how the judgment of our works affect our eternal destiny, but it's abundantly clear that our works are judged and that it will affect our eternal reward. All right? So when Jesus says, judge not, that you not be judged, we can be sure that God will judge the self-righteous in both this world and in the next. All right? Verse 2, Jesus goes on to describe the measuring stick by which he will judge. He says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. See, God will judge us The Word says, God will judge us according to our own standard. When we stand in judgment over our brothers and sisters because of our self-righteousness, we set ourselves up as the model, right? We set ourselves up as the model. By our actions, we claim greater knowledge, greater righteousness, or the moral high ground. And with those things come a much greater responsibility and accountability. We will be judged according to the standard that we claim to have attained. Luke 12, 48 says, Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Same way, Romans 2, 1 says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Pastor Eric, um, when he was introducing the songs, talked about God's mercy and, and how we have been recipients 
of that mercy. We've been recipients of that grace. No one should be more quick to extend grace and mercy than those who have received it by God, right? But we don't. We judge one another. Finally, James 3.1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. James 3.1, I'm not particularly a fan of that verse. (laughs) If you set yourself up as the judge and authority, then God will judge you according to the standard that you set for others. We know that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 9. We know that, as, we, as we'll see in the next couple verses, the human heart is prone to hypocrisy. And before you set your, yourself over others as judge, take a close look at your own life. Examine the motivations of your own heart. Examine your own practical obedience. Would your life, including your thoughts and your motivations, escape the scrutiny of your own judgment? If not, it will surely not escape God's. Of that you can be sure. Beginning in verse 3, Jesus illustrates his point in a hyperbolic way. He says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus provides us with a ridiculous illustration on par with a camel going through the eye of a needle. And the illustration makes his point so well because it is so absurd, right? On the one hand, a brother has a speck in his eye. A speck could be sawdust or it could describe something bigger, like a chip or a splinter of wood. And every one of us, at some point in our life, has had something in our eye, right? It's serious. The eye is an incredibly sensitive organ in the body. It's irritating. It's painful. And if left untreated, if left in the eye, the foreign substance can cause permanent loss of sight. That, that speck that we're talking about for that brother is a big deal. All right? Don't lose sight of that. Don't lose that in the hyperbole. The, uh, the speck is a big deal. On the other hand, you have the self-righteous brother with a huge log sticking out of his own eye, who's setting himself up to be a spiritual ophthalmologist. And he's preparing to do the spiritual surgery on the brother all the while with a two-by-four sticking out of his face. That person ought not judge. Why? Because that person is incapable. Don't miss that. It's not a matter of ought to. It's a matter of his ability to. That person is incapable of judging rightly. The log represents the self-righteousness and the judgmentalism that Jesus spoke of in verse 1. And until we deal with that, we are not only unqualified to judge, we're powerless to do so effectively. 
And not only that, but the presence of the log, hear this part, the presence of the log proves that we aren't really concerned about righteousness and true judgment anyway, right? Because if we were, we would deal with it first within ourselves rather than pointing to a brother. The true disciple of Christ hungers and thirsts for righteousness, Matthew 5, 6 from the Beatitudes, first in themselves and then in others. Okay, the true disciple of Christ hungers and thirsts for righteousness first in themselves and then in others. Always in that order, never reversed. If we're truly concerned about truth and righteousness, then we would judge ourselves. And since we often fail to do so, perhaps our motivation is not about truth at all. Perhaps it betrays a self-righteous and judgmental spirit that we need to repent of before the Lord. When we read uh, verse 3 and 4 together, they sound very much the same, right? We know that Jesus often uses repetition in his teaching. So is verse 4 merely a restatement of the previous verse? In one sense, sure. There, There are definitely significant parallels. On the other hand, there is a change of focus, ophthalmology pun intended, um, between verse 3 and verse 4, all right? right. Um, Verse 3 is about seeing. Look closely at this. Verse 3 is about seeing. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye, okay? Um, It's about our state or our condition. We see the fault in our brother, but don't notice the glaring fault in our own life. Our self-righteousness is like a log hanging out of the eye, making us blind and rendering us incapable of right judgment. Verse 4, on the other hand, is not about seeing. There's a subtle change in the wording. It's not about seeing, it's about saying. Okay? Okay? Jesus says, or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? So in verse 4, we take action, all right? In verse 3, we're seeing it, we're noticing it, we're aware of it. Um, But in verse 4, then, we begin to speak our criticism and judgment to a brother. All the while, suffering from the log in our own eye, which renders us ineffective. And since the log in our eye represents our self-righteousness, our self-righteous judgmental spirit, why are we surprised? Why are we surprised when our words are not heard? Why are we surprised when our judgments are not received? Why are we surprised when we do not see the fruit of repentance? See, Jesus condemns us as hypocrites at the beginning of verse 5. He says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly take a speck out of your brother's eye. The brother on the receiving end is not blind. He has tears welling up because of the irritation, but he can still see the log sticking out of yours. All right? He knows a hypocrite when he sees one, and his guard is up. The hypocrite cares more about condemning the person than he does eradicating the sin. 
The hypocrite cares more about displaying his own self-righteousness than he does seeing a brother come to repentance. And if we really care about helping others, then our first step is to deal with ourselves. Jesus says, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Get rid of your self-righteousness. Get rid of your judgmental spirit. Repent of your sinful attitudes. See yourself for who you are. Judge yourself according to God's Word. Abide in the Holy Spirit and seek to grow each and every day in practical holiness. Approach others with grace, speaking the truth in love. Focus not on condemning the person, but on lovingly calling them to repentance. And once you've removed the log from your own eye, then you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Very, very, very important. Don't miss this. Notice that we are to do exactly that. Okay? We are to carefully remove the speck from our brother's eye. Okay? The, the whole thing about do not judge leads to that. We are to remove that speck from our brother's eye, but we have to deal with ourselves first. That's why the words judge not in verse 1 cannot mean never judge. We're commanded here to remove the speck. But only after we've dealt with our own sinful self-righteousness. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, meaning those who have presumably removed the log from their own eye, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And that last phrase is the balance on the self-righteousness. Because if you're self-righteous, you think you're untouchable. But Paul says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. The procedure of getting a speck out of an eye can be a very difficult operation. There is no organ that is more sensitive in the human body than the eye. The moment the finger touches it, it closes up. Last week, I uh, took my mom to a pre-op consultation for cataract surgery. And uh, they sat at her on various machines, which even that was a trial because she's only this high. They sat her on various machines in order to get the measurements that they needed. And because of the sensitivity, she had an extremely difficult time keeping her eyes open wide enough to get the shots they needed. It got so bad. It got so bad they had to bring in multiple staff members to assist her. They literally stood next to her and tried to hold her eyelids open so they can get the shot. And of course, when they touched her eyes, it made it that much worse, right? Because not, I, I want to say she was fighting it, but, but it was an involuntary fight. You know, the eye works that way. Um, and this process, believe it or not, to get the three photos they needed, three measurements this they needed, this process lasted for well over a half hour. 
as they try to get pictures on the three different machines. And by the end of that time, five different nurses had been involved in assisting her. At no time were any of them frustrated with her. They were patient, caring, compassionate, and encouraging. At the same time, they were firm in their resolve to get the pictures they needed. Those pictures were necessary for my mom's surgery and her future quality of life. They were going to get those shots if it took hours. All right? I want you to take that illustration and apply it to the spiritual realm. When you're touching a soul, you are touching the most sensitive thing in the person of man. Removing the speck requires patience, caring, compassion, and encouragement. Speak the truth in love, but be sure that you're speaking God's truth, right? You'll never, ever hear me ever talk about watering anything down, right? Speak truth clearly. Make sure you're speaking God's truth. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Hebrews 4.12 God's Word never returns void. Speak the Word clearly and trust in the Holy Spirit to convict and lead a brother to repentance. Jesus concludes his thoughts on judgment in verse 6 with uh, what appears on the surface to be a surprising statement. He says, and we've read this already, Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and return to attack you. And so far, he's warned us about judging, and we determined that what he was actually condemning was the self-righteous attitude that casts final judgment upon individuals. He cautioned us to remove the log from our own eye before we attempt to remove the speck from our brother's eye. He told us that we would be judged according to the standard that we set for ourselves. And the statement in verse 6 gives balance. It's not just sitting out there by itself, though it can read that way. The statement in verse 6 gives balance to the whole section. And while we're commanded not to be hypercritical of our brother, we are never told not to be discriminating. Not to be discriminating. And that's what he addresses here. The typical dog during the time of Christ was not a friendly house pet. All right? Certainly there were dogs that were trained to watch the sheep, but the vast majority of them were mongrels. Wild dogs that roamed the cities and the trash heaps. They were dirty, unclean, and vicious. Pigs were, of course, considered by the Jew to be an unclean animal. Okay? Both the dogs and the, the pigs were considered unclean. And Jesus says not to throw what is holy before the dogs, and not to throw pearls or what is valuable to the pigs. The problem is, and I said this earlier, how do you know who the dogs and the pigs are without exercising right judgment and discernment? You have to. You have to. I believe that both the holy things and the pearls that are referred to in the passage refer to the gospel message. 
the gospel message. And while we're commanded to share the gospel with all nations, great commission, um, there can come a time within a conversation when we know that the message will not be received. Of course, God can and does do anything. But in the moment, there are times where we can see that this message is not being received, at least in that moment, right? God may use that as a planted seed to work later. Um, but in that moment, there, we can come a time where it's like, we're not going any further. The effect of sin on our, upon our nature as a result of the fall gives man an antagonism to the truth. Before you came to Christ, you had an antagonism to the truth. Everyone in this room. Apart from the new creation, our nature resembles that of dogs and pigs rather than a man seeking after God. And that's why Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10, verse 14, and if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town, right? One of the greatest privileges that God gives us is to be used by him to share the gospel and to receive one of his children, to be used in some way to lead one of his children into his family. Share with all. Share with all. But be wise and discerning regarding how you share, when you share, how much you share, and how long you share. Use wisdom. Use judgment. Be discerning. This is what Jesus is saying here. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Matthew 7, 6. Judge not that you not be judged. Do not let a self-righteous attitude and judgmental spirit dominate your life. Do not usurp the role of God by seeking to cast final judgment on individual people. And if you truly desire, you truly desire to come along someone in their, own, in their sin, you must first deal with yourself. Deal with yourself. Cast away the log from your eye. Cast away your sinful, prideful attitudes and judgments. And once you've done that, and only after you've done that, then you're prepared to take the speck out of your brother's eye. When you do, do so with grace. Speaking the truth in love, that, you might, that they might come to repentance. And then together, you can glorify your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father, as we read passages like this, it is so easy for us to see others who are like that, others who are judgmental, others who are self-righteous, rather than to see ourselves clearly in the pages of your word. 
But Lord, to one degree or another, Lord, we all struggle with this. Lord, we, we, we know truth. We, um, we know your word. And we're very quick to condemn those who believe differently and those who act differently. And Lord, that's not to excuse sin. It's not. But Lord, help us to deal rightly with ourselves first before we point fingers. And Father, when we do point a finger, may that finger be pointed to you. Lord, leading a brother, leading a sister to repentance, leading a brother or a sister to truth, leading them to eternal life. Lord, give us the wisdom to do that, to, to, see, to look first at our own life, to clean up what needs to be cleaned up, knowing we can't do that on our own anyway, Lord. We rely on your Holy Spirit to mold us and to change us and get, right, get rid of wrong attitudes in our life. But Lord, help us to diligently seek that, as the Beatitudes said. Father, help us to seek first that righteousness. And Lord, once... We've, you've moved us in that direction. Once you have cleansed us, Lord, then and only then may you use us in the life of another. Lord, and may the end result of that be, as I've shared already, repentance, faith, Lord, that is drawn to you. And may you receive all the glory for what you are doing, not only in a brother, but what you began in us. Father, may that be so in our lives as we seek to follow you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Please rise for the benediction. And remember, stay for Mary's cake. All right? Stay for Mary's cake. But receive the benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in His peace.